Well, good morning. How are we this morning? So I'm noticing a pattern here. Uh, I preached Time Change Weekend last year, too. So I'm starting to wonder if Gary likes me or not. I don't know. Um, But the good news is we're actually talking about Sabbath rest this morning. And I think half the church is applying that message already um, for spring break. So it's good to see those that are here. Um, Turn to John chapter 5. And I want you to imagine um, if someone famous or even like a local person of local notoriety came into this room or even your place of work. And imagine if someone like that came into your place of work or even in here, our, our worship gathering, um, how you and I might respond. There are just certain kinds of people. I think we, if they come into a room, we acknowledge they're there. We, we intentionally go out of our way to acknowledge their presence and to make sure that they feel like they're welcomed in and make sure that they're okay. And on the flip side of that, there are people that we, I think, ignore intentionally. And I think of my first uh, trip to New York City many, many years ago, where um, I was, I realized on that trip just how thrown into the mix you were with people that were in need. And of course, here in in the smaller cities, we have the, the insulation of our car, and we can avoid those situations pretty easily. But there in the city, you are on the bus, you're on the subway, you are on the streets with these people, and you find yourself very uncomfortable, and at times um, finding ways to intentionally avoid. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus never does this. He never does this. The people that you and I tend to avoid intentionally, Jesus intentionally goes after these people and often walks right into the midst of them, and um, it creates for some pretty intriguing stories throughout the Gospels. Uh, He notices the people that we don't notice. And we'll see this today in our text in John chapter 5. We have seen Jesus talk to a religious guy in Nicodemus. We have seen him talk to a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. And now we're going to see him interact with a helpless beggar here in John chapter 5. But as incredible as this story is, and it's a healing story, the healing isn't the main point of the story. It's the aftermath. And so part of that, uh, Gary's going to cover next week. You really could teach all of John 5 as one big sermon, but I'm going to leave the rest for, for Gary to mop up after I'm done next week. But um, the real story is the aftermath of what takes place after this miracle. Chapter 5 marks a turning point in the book of John. If you can trace, go to the cross at the end of the book and trace the conflict that led to the cross... Um, in John, John chapter 5 is where that conflict begins. John 5 is the turning point of this gospel. So look with me at, at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So right next to the temple, there is uh, this sheep gate for the sheep to pass through on the way to the temple. This is where they would be washed and ritually cleansed before they would become sacrificed inside the temple gates. And there was this pool there, and uh, this is also 
where the pool would often bubble up, whether it was a natural spring-fed pool or not, we don't know. But uh, the people that were in need saw this kind of like a healing pool, like a fountain of youth, so to speak. And uh, we have a picture here of this. This is um, what's known as that pool today, the pool at Bethesda. This is St. Anne Church behind, located right behind the pool. I want to take a time out for a minute here in our text. Um, if you look down at your text, you're going to see that your, most of your Bibles go from verses 3 to verse 5. And you might be wondering, where's verse 4? Verse 4 is missing in most of your Bibles. Who, who actually has a verse 4 in their Bible? Raise your hand. Um, some King James, I think, may have it, and some others possibly as well. Um, but here's the reasoning for that. Most scholars believe that, chapter, that, that verse 4 was um, not original to the text. And so they think that it was added later on by a scribe, maybe in a footnote or a margin. And so they think it wasn't original to the text. So they, they don't think it's, it's, it's original to the manuscripts. And uh, so um, you might think, if you're a skeptic, you might think, well, that just confirms my skepticism on we can't trust the Bible and what it says. And I would say the opposite, I think, is true. Because we have this, this thing called textual criticism. If you want to hear more about this, a guy named Dan Wallace did a great sermon on this uh, back last year during our question series on how we can trust the Bible. That's what Dan Wallace does, is textual criticism. And the fact that we know that verse 4, we think, was added later on, um, I think gives us great confidence in the text that we have in front of us. So the fact that we, we let these things kind of be discussed, I think, in, 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 the Christian, in the Christian circles, to me, gives great confidence to the text that we have um, before us. So here's what verse 4 does say, if you have it in your, in your Bibles. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, most likely, this was a superstition. This was probably not happening in, in a real sense, but it was, uh, this is the ancient world, and so there's lots of superstitions at that time. In fact, one ancient superstition is from, from an Egyptian medicine book where they thought to prevent hair from turning gray, you can anoint it with the blood of a black calf boiled in oil or with the fat of a rattlesnake. Interesting. Another one, when hair falls out, apply a mixture of five fats, fat of the horse, hippo, crocodile, snake, and a cat. I knew Gary would like that one. I can fix baldness through cat murder? Sign me up. That is a win-win, right? And so we know the ancient world was full of superstition. And so that's most likely happening here um, in verse 4. But I want you to picture this place. The, the look and the feel and the smells of this location. This would be like many city squares, many big city squares today, where people gather looking for people to help them with their ailments. I can remember many years ago when I went on my first mission trip to Mexico, and we're in this one city square, and there's this man who's just destitute. You ever, are you ever in a situation like that, and, and someone just catches your eye? You see all those that are in need, but there's this one that just stands out. And this one guy was laying on his back 
on one of those boards that you go under cars with that has wheels on the bottom of it. He's laying on his back. He has no legs. He's missing an arm, and he has one shriveled hand, and he's just ringing a bell. And that's his way of asking for help, just ringing the bell. And there's this one guy that catches Jesus' attention. And we see it in in verse 5 where it says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. So this man's destitute. Desperate. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Now, from the text, it seems like this man is at, least, is at least partially paralyzed. And I don't know if you've ever had, had any kind of partial paralysis for any length of time. When I was in high school, I played soccer. And in this one game, I got twisted up, and, and we had some contact, and I landed on the ground. And all I remember is I didn't feel any kind of pinching of nerves anywhere, but I was on the ground, and my brain was telling my left leg to move, and the, the leg wouldn't move. And I'm sitting there terrified, thinking I'm partially paralyzed. And I gather myself, and I limp off to the sideline. I come out of the game. And for about two minutes, I had no movement in my left leg. And it was terrifying. And that was for a couple of minutes. This man has experienced this for 38 years. Some kind of partial partial paralysis. And... um, So Jesus sees him, and he asks him a strange question. He asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Which might sound strange to us. And if you look at the Gospels, many of the questions that Jesus will ask are often rhetorical, meaning he's not really looking for a response. He's he's trying to to, um, confront something in the person he's talking to. It's like whenever you're... Your kid does something crazy, and you're like, what were you thinking? And you're not expecting a response or an answer to that. You just know. You know what they were thinking, right? It's a rhetorical device. You're trying to confront something in them. And Jesus does this all the time whenever he asks questions in the Gospels. He's trying to confront something, I think, in this man. We also see it in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve when they sin, and then they go hide. And God says, where are you? God knows where they are. It's a rhetorical device. It's, it's meant to confront something in them as he asks the question. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here in this text. He's trying to press on this man and ask him, have you given up hope? Have you given up even the desire to be healed? I think we get a clue for why he asked this question in the man's response. Look at verse 7. It says, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So why does Jesus ask that question? I think he's trying to elicit this response. Because this man believes that if I just... If I just had someone to help me into this water, if I just had somebody to help me down these steps, he sees this water as his, this water as his only chance for healing. I think Jesus shows him, no, there's, there's a different way for you to be healed. And in the book of John, we, we see several references to water. 
We see water turned into wine. We see a woman coming to draw water at a well. And then Jesus offers her living water. I think D.A. Carson does a really good job tying these stories together when he says, Just as the water from the purification pots of the Orthodox could neither produce nor be mistaken for the new wine of the kingdom, and just as the water from Jacob's well could not satiate the thirst of religious people, that's the Samaritan woman, so the promises of merely superstitious religion have no power to transform the truly needy. And so I think there is a connection I think we can make as we look at these different stories in this section of John. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well just wants water. She's just coming to draw water from the well. But Jesus ends up showing her her deeper need. In this story, this man just wants some water. As you'll see in the story later, Jesus reveals his deeper need. This man put his faith in some superstitious magic water, but the living water is standing right in front of him saying, get up and walk. He sees this water as his only ticket. He sees this physical water as his only ticket, his only hope. For 38 years, it's all he has known, and yet right here he stands face to face with his only true hope, which is the Son of God himself. And I think we have a tendency to kind of write off someone like this as this is ancient superstition, this is a desperate man with a magical imagination, and we can write off someone like this so easily. But I think, um, if we're honest, I wonder if sometimes our Christianity is just superstition with a Jesus label. I think many of us see Jesus as a good luck charm. He's there for our success. He's there for our comfort. I see this in my own life. I see it in the lives of those that I counsel with. We see Jesus as our ticket to success, or he's just there to comfort me. And the question I think that we have to wrestle with is, do we really want him to change us? Do you want just the circumstances around you to change, or do you want to be changed by Jesus? So for this man, his physical paralysis may have led to a paralysis of will or a paralysis of desire. So does he want healing? The same can be asked of us. Do we want Jesus to change us? I mean, fundamentally change us. I think this is the question I think this story can press, can press us in. And so we've talked about this miracle But this healing isn't the real story. The real story is what happens next. If you look at your text, the next phrase is really important. It says, now that day was the Sabbath. This whole story has been building to this point. I think John is an ingenious writer. He knows how to build the tension of the plot. So this day was the Sabbath. If this was... A movie, this is when you would hear the the ominous music begin. Because why was the Sabbath such a big deal? Exodus chapter 20 tells us. Read Exodus 20 where it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. So God was calling the nation of Israel to keep the Sabbath And the Sabbath was hugely important. That meant that you had to rest. But it also meant you can't ask others to do your bidding. That meant your family, your servants, even your livestock, even a guest that you may have in your your gates. So you can't ask anybody else to do your bidding for you. I think of when I was really young and in our house we had this TV where you had to actually get up and walk over and turn the channel. You remember TVs like this? Raise your hand. Anyone have a TV like this in your house? Anybody? You still have one? No? But my dad would say, hey, can you get up and turn the channel? And it's like, I'd, I'd get up and go do it, right? Obedient son. But here's the deal. In this passage, you see, you can't ask someone else to do your bidding. If you're trying to get work done... You can't go around it. You can't ask someone else to do your bidding. Everyone is supposed to rest when it's a Sabbath. The point of this, the reason why God set this up, we know humans need rest. We know that that's just fact. But that's not why God did this. God wanted the people of Israel to know they belong to him, that they're sustained by his hand, that he's a provider. And we know for those of us that are workaholics that resting is hard work, isn't it? Resting is hard work. You have to be disciplined and get your stuff done. And so you can rest. And so this is what God is, is telling the nation they have to do, is they have to get their stuff completed in the six days. They have the seventh day to rest. And the point of that was to show, remind the people that God was their provider. He was their hand of provision. And that he's the one that provides just what they need. So this meant that they could not plant, they couldn't harvest, they couldn't light a fire, that, that food was prepared before the Sabbath. This also meant that breaking the Sabbath was very serious business. And so what would happen, this raised the question, well, how do you define work? If he says we can't work on the Sabbath, well, how do you define work? So over the years, in their effort to not break the Sabbath law, they began to add laws or rules to God's law. They created something called the Mishnah. This is a tradition passed down from generation to generation. And this began to grow and grow and grow and grow. There were 24 chapters on work in the Mishnah. There were 39 categories of banned activities. Here's some examples. They could not go more than 1,000 yards from home on the Sabbath. Women could not look into a mirror because they might see a gray hair and want to pull it out, and that would be work. You couldn't tie or untie a knot that required two hands because you might work up a sweat. You couldn't wear artificial teeth, which didn't know existed back then, um, or a wooden leg on the Sabbath. You couldn't carry a needle in a robe. You couldn't clip your toenails or fingernails. You couldn't carry something from inside the house to the outside. You couldn't carry something more than six feet inside the house. 
which I can imagine that just led to a lot of rule bending. You know, just throw it across the house and then walk over and get it, right? Or lots of five-and-a-half-foot relays. Like, you take it five-and-a-half feet, then you take it five-and-a-half feet, right? So there's ways around these things. But remember, the text also said, no livestock. Livestock can't work. And so there was this one rule that they had. You could eat an egg laid on the Sabbath only if you killed the chicken the next day because the chicken worked on the Sabbath and should be punished. So if it's the Sabbath and we're having eggs, then tomorrow we're having chicken, right? So you can see these, these rules are just ridiculous. I mean, these, these, they're creating man-made rules to create fences around the law of God. And so their intentions were good, but they went in some crazy directions with their man-made traditions. This is not what God intended, And this explains what happens next in verse 10 where it says, So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. I want you to see how ridiculous what we just read really is. I mean, let's just recap. This man's been crippled for 38 years. They had to know who he was because he wasn't very mobile. And Jesus heals this man. He picks up his mat and he walks. And the first thing out of their mouths is verse 10. Uh, Actually, sir, it is the Sabbath, and uh, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. Actually. That's the first thing they say. No joy. No gladness. No compassion. Just, uh, you're breaking the Sabbath rules, sir. That's it. A couple of weeks ago, some friends of mine here at the church, we went to um, Pine Cove for a father-daughter weekend. And they said, they're going to have this big surprise for us on Saturday night. And they brought in this magician. And this guy was incredible. And after every trick this guy did, all of us as the dads are just going, how did this guy do that? That was amazing. And one of the tricks that he did, he had a girl come up on stage, and he had a Rubik's Cube, and he had her mess it all up in whatever way she wanted. He takes the Rubik's Cube, he looks at it several times, several angles, looks away, and does it with one hand back to the way it's supposed to go in 10 seconds. Now, I know for every trick there's an explanation, but we're just caught up in awe at this guy and wondering, how does he do this? How did he do that one? How did he do that one? And I'm trying to imagine if this man was doing real miracles. And if he was alleviating people that had lifelong ailments, just how incredibly caught up in that we would be. And yet, how hard-hearted do you have to be where verse 10 is your response to this man being healed? And so these Jews come and confront him and say, 
Why are you carrying your mat around on the Sabbath? And he, he blame shifts. You've heard the excuse, the devil made me do it. Well, he says, Jesus made me do it. So he, he passes the buck on to Jesus. And then look what happens in verse 14. It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. I think we're encountering a, a less sensitive Jesus in this text uh, for some reason. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So look back at verse 14 where Jesus says, See you are well, sin no more. That's just a strange thing to say, isn't it? I see that you're well, now stop sinning. But I think what's being implied in this text, if you look at suffering and sin in the scriptures, I think you can conclude that all suffering isn't linked to specific sins. We would never go to someone and say, oh, you're suffering in this way, it's because you did X, Y, and Z. We would never say that. We can't draw those conclusions. But sometimes there is a connection. And I think Jesus implies that here. Sometimes there can be a connection. And we don't know the, the backstory of this man or what's happened, but he seems to imply there is something behind his, his paralysis. And the response of this man is we don't see any faith or belief in this man. It, 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 it kind of blows out of the water the idea that if you just have enough faith that God will heal you. You see people, Jesus healing people that really didn't have faith. He just plucks them out out of his grace and mercy and heals them. And we see it all throughout the Gospels. And this man seems to have no faith and no belief. He even throws Jesus under the bus. And we see in verse 17, Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I am working. And I think he's starting to press now on their understanding of work and Sabbath. This word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew verb to cease. That just meant to stop normal work, to stop commerce. Whatever you normally do from, you know, the other days of the week, stop doing those things and you take a time out and you cease from work so you can honor God and recognize him as your provider. This was supposed to be a day of joy and rest. Instead became a celebration of legalism. Instead of being the best day of the week, it was the worst day of the week. It has so many rules and stipulations for people. This raises, I think, a really important question. What is it about human nature where we tend towards legalism and adding things to God's law? It makes sense to me that we would take God's law and try to make it easier or softer, but harder? What is it about human nature that we, we add things to God's law? If we create extra rules, we feel like we can control where we stand with God. If we create extra hoops for us to jump through, we feel like we control 
how righteous we are before God. So there's this, hor- there's this vertical element of how we think we are in favor with God. But there's also this other horizontal element where if we can create these extra rules, we control where we stand with other people. And we can feed our prideful ego and play the comparison game. I think Josh Moody summarizes this really well. He says, One lesson we learn from the Jewish leaders, it is easy for us to refashion truly biblical commitments into restrictive, human-centered tokens of pride and communal distinction. Legalism is not to be confused with discipline. To be disciplined is like being well-trained for playing a game of tennis. To be legalistic is like creating a set of rules so that only certain very special people who happen to include ourselves can play tennis at all. This is, this is man-made religion. This leads to the comparison game and trying to earn favor with God through our actions. So when Jesus confronts these, these legalists, he doesn't play into their game. You notice in verse 17, he just he says, my father is working until now, and I am working. He just owns it. He just says, yeah, I'm working just like my father's working. Resting on the Sabbath doesn't mean stop doing good or stop showing compassion. God doesn't suspend his activities on the Sabbath. You notice that the laws of nature don't take a holiday if, if someone cuts himself and it's the Sabbath, um, does the healing process wait until the next day? If you cut yourself on the Sabbath, does God say, well, you just, we're going to let you bleed out? No, there's a natural healing process that kicks in whenever we injure ourselves. And I think if we would look at the miracles of Christ, especially in this situation, we can conclude this. And this is so important. Healing is resting. Healing is resting. Healing might be the greatest form of rest. When when you look at the, the miracles of Jesus, and he heals someone who's blind, that is meant to point to a greater spiritual reality of spiritual blindness and spiritual sight coming to the one who was blind. Jesus invites us in to that rest. Every miracle he does where he heals someone, I think is pointing to a deeper spiritual reality of rest. Healing is resting. I think it is the highest form of rest. And this is the rest that he invites all of us into. In the time of Christ, there were these rabbis that had differing interpretations of the law. And they would add things, as we've talked about already this morning, to God's law. And this, their interpretations of the law were, were called the rabbi's yoke. And so if you chose to follow a certain rabbi, you would choose to take on that rabbi's yoke and follow it, and try to obey it. And I think this gives context to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you think about the Christian faith, there are really two ways that someone can be lost. The first is to live rebelliously. I think we know what that means. The second is to live religiously, trying to earn favor with God. That also means there's two ways, there's two things we need to repent from. One, of course, is open rebellion against God, turn from rebellion. But the second is to turn from religion and trying to earn favor with God through our works. Christianity is the only religion where you have to repent of your bad works and your good works if you are counting on your good works to earn favor with God. When I was uh, nine years old, I grew up close to Washington, D.C., and um, my church was going to go into uh, the city to hear a guy named Billy Graham preach. And, uh, and the church was taking a bus to the city to go hear him preach one in RFK Stadium in downtown Washington, D.C. And I don't know what it was, but something in me just, I wanted to go. But it was an, an adult-only trip, apparently. And um, I cried my way onto the church bus. And I get on the church bus, and we go to hear him preach. And you know the marks of a good preacher when you can remember like exact quotes from years later. And this one thing that he said, I'll never forget. He said very simply, Christianity is not a religion. And my, I thought, what? That doesn't make sense to me. He said, it's a relationship. And Christianity, at its inception, the early church, it was actually seen as a non-religion. It made no sense to the culture that was around it. And so this is the invitation from Jesus to pick up your mat and come find rest. Come find rest. Father, we're, we're grateful and thankful that um, you invite us into this rest. You invite us into this relationship with you that supersedes what we know as religion. And we thank you that we don't have to earn favor with you, that you bestow your favor upon us through your righteousness as you apply it to us through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We pray, God, that the people that are in this room, that, are, that all of us, as we strive to earn your favor, we would just stop and rest, knowing that this Sabbath rest points to this greater rest, this spiritual rest of security in you. We pray you make that real to us today, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.